Hello, and very welcome to this first episode of The Search Space, a podcast about logic programming. I'm Felix, and I've been working on this for quite a while, so I'm very happy to launch it, and I'm very happy that you found it and that you're here. So here in this first episode, I talk with Robert Kowalski. Bob is Professor Emeritus and Distinguished Research Fellow at Imperial College in London. He has spent five decades doing research in many topics surrounding logic programming and computational logic generally. And he is one of the original creators of the field of logic programming and of Prolog which is still by far the most famous among logic programming languages. Prolog is just a couple of years short of 50, but it's still very much alive. Just to mention one example, Yarn is a package manager for JavaScript, and in their latest release that came out just recently, they are using Prolog to implement a system that lets users set up complex bespoke constraints for their package dependencies. They do this using uh, Tau Prolog, a recent implementation of Prolog written in JavaScript. In this conversation, me and Bob talk about the early history of Prolog, the importance of logic in general, the relationship between symbolic AI and statistical or connectionist AI, including deep learning, and a lot more. Before we go to the interview, I want to warn you that the sound on this episode didn't come out very well, to my great agony. On Bob's end, there is a lot of pop and sparkle going on, which is unfortunate. I have improved the recording process, so future episodes will be pop and sparkle free. I do think you'll find that Bob's ideas and insights more than make up for the bad audio, though. In our conversation, we touch on quite a few technical ideas from logic and computer science, and I thought it might be helpful to give a very brief overview of some of them here at the beginning. If you are now just itching to get to the interview already, feel free to skip forward a couple of minutes. And if you find the information density a bit too high, later on as you listen to the interview, you can always come back here to the intro again, and hopefully this overview will help a bit. So there is this idea that theorems in mathematics could be possible to prove or disprove using a relatively small number of simple rules applied mechanically without relying on human ingenuity and creativity. And since the late 19th century, there has been a lot of research in pursuit of this idea. It's a surprisingly complex and deep topic. So when electronic computers came around, Attempts at automated theorem proving naturally became an early application for them, and the topic is part of the core of computer science. Logic programming, the topic of this podcast, can be seen as an offshoot of all this research. In the mid-1960s, Alan Robinson came up with a new algorithm for automated theorem proving called Resolution where you start out with a background of already established knowledge, and then you introduce the theorem that you want to prove. Um, I think a good way for programmers to get an intuition about what's going on here is to think about a database query, for example in SQL. 
So you have the query expressed in a logical language, and SQL is also, at its core, a logical language. And this query, or theorem, has some variables. And based on what you already know, you want to find instantiations for those variables so that you can make the query true. The query is the goal that controls the execution of the program. Resolution searches through the possible instantiations, but that can, of course, become incredibly slow due to combinatorial explosion. So Robinson introduced a technique called unification to, to guide the search and discover the different ways that the pieces in your knowledge base can be simplified or combined together. And this combination of search and unification is also the basis for prologue and logic programming. Unification doesn't really exist in programming languages outside of logic programming, except if you have used a type system like in Haskell or ML or one of its descendants like Elm, where you get unification on the type level, but not at the base level in your actual functions. Here's a very simple example of unification. Imagine that you have two statements, x equals y, and y equals 5, in that order. Normally in programming, y has to be bound to some value for x equals y to make sense. But here the meaning is not at all something like copy the content of y over to x. Instead, x equals y is stating an equality. And what unification will do is to look for some way that we can make it so that x and y are in fact equal. In this case, it is simple because we find out that y equals 5 and then all we have to do is set x to 5 as well. Uh, this is just about the simplest example of unification, but it gets a lot more interesting and useful when you unify complex terms. There is one more crucial elemental prologue that Bob and I talk about a bit in the interview, namely horn clauses. Horn clauses are a particular way to write logical statements which limits them, limits their expressiveness, but also simplifies the process of resolution. And they also have the property that they can be read as if-then rules. So they have a very intuitive meaning, which is not imperative, but more like saying, if an animal is a mammal, then it is a vertebrate. Which, if you think of it, seems very simple, but there isn't really a direct way to express that in other programming paradigms. Okay, again, this was just an attempt to give you a little bit of a context to hold on to as you listen to the interview. Hopefully I didn't say anything that was completely wrong. With this simple map in our hands, let's finally jump into my conversation with Robert Kowalski. Bob Kowalski, welcome to the very first episode of this podcast. Um, I'm really happy that you uh, agreed to join me. I can't think of any person who would be better suited to to start off with to try to understand uh, logic programming and and all the related areas. So welcome. Thank you very much. I, I hope I live up to your expectations. We should probably start by trying to get some grip of what logic programming is and give a definition or some examples, but. I would actually like to start um, by a quote that I just found yesterday. 
I was reading a paper. I don't know if it perhaps was a presentation originally by um, Alan Robinson, John Alan Robinson, who, <clears throat> as far as I understand, some of the work he did was a kind of a precursor to some of your early work. Um, and he was uh, writing or speaking in the year 2000, I think, about um, the adoption of uh, logic programming. So he said that, um, I'm quoting, during the 1970s, logic programming moved to the center of the stage of computational logic, uh, thanks to uh, the, well, he's mentioning uh, the availability of Prolog, and to Bob Kowalski's eloquent and tireless advocacy of the new programming paradigm. And uh, at the same time, you, <laughs> you're writing in your account of the early years of logic programming. Um, I think you're saying that you had a, a vague, a faint revulsion for programming and everything else to do with computers. <laughs> so could you <laughs> explain a little bit about your own background here and how you got into, well, computing and computer languages from a starting point where it seems that was not your primary interest? Right. Well, I, I'm not sure I, I can quite capture what, what, what I disliked about programming uh, to begin with. I, I did have a course in Fortran as an undergraduate, and it was one of the courses in which I did at least well. Um, I was interested in, in uh, philosophy at the, uh, at the undergraduate university I went to, but there was no option of, of majoring in philosophy, which I might have done, so I majored in, in mathematics instead. I think I found programming as, as exemplified by, pro, uh, by, by Fortran, I found it so uh, low level, so machine oriented, so, so much to do with manip manipulating the memory of a machine. And by contrast, I was aware of, of logic. I had some exposure to logic earlier and it seemed to me so much higher level, so much uh, more human oriented and capable of being uh, systematically applied to try to solve problems. So I, whether I was conscious or not at a very early stage, I, I, I thought programming a, a computer compared very poorly with uh, with the way formal symbolic logic attempted to uh, formalize uh, human human thinking. Yeah, so that that maybe had had something to do with it. Hmm. So that seems to be a very strong theme in logic programming in general to try to raise the level at which you view a problem. But so let's get into then what logic programming means. Would you like to give us a, a first definition? Okay, well, I guess one has to come, up, come at it uh, starting abstractly and then homing in on specifics. So from an abstract point of view, it, it, it's more or less as I already suggested, uh, formalizing human language, human uh, thought, and attempting to make that uh, executable by computer to derive the consequences of those thoughts. Um, so that, that's a very general characterization. I guess you could say it's a characterization of computational logic more generally. Now, logic programming is a particular manifestation of that, and indeed there are other manifestations which I'm more focused on uh, recently. But uh, logic programming itself is a very simple way of of representing knowledge, which also is uh, very naturally executable by, by computer, and that's to uh, represent our thoughts 
in terms of conclusions that follow from conditions. So a certain conclusion holds if certain conditions hold. An example of that might be, for example, uh, you are a British citizen if you're born in the United Kingdom uh, and one of your parents is uh, also a British citizen. So you have one conclusion that you are a British citizen, uh, yet you have multiple conditions, namely that uh, you were born in the United Kingdom and one of your parents was born in the United Kingdom. So one one goal, so to speak, of determining or knowing that you're a British citizen reduces to two sub goals, namely where were you born in the United Kingdom, maybe, and who were your where were your uh, parents? Were your parents? What was the citizenship of your parents? So that that that's that representation is is associated with horn clause logic. So we often talk about horn logic or horn clause logic because it's a sub-language of, of logic which has that rather specific form which is very amenable to uh, computation, typically by problem reduction, reducing goals to sub-goals. The goal of determining whether someone is a British citizen to the sub-goals of determining where they were born and uh, what kind of citizenship uh, that person's parents had. So I think that, in a nutshell, is the the essence of, of logic programming. Um, I think uh, most programmers will definitely kind of recognize this as kind of an essential part of programming, uh, checking for conditions and uh, uh, and building logic around those. But it, unless you have some experience with logic programming, it might not be apparent how th- how this is different from other uh, programming paradigms or languages. But before we get into that, like. What is, it seems there is an, I don't know, an intuition or a claim that logic in the first place is is very important or central to human thinking or cognition. Would you say so? And if so, how how accepted is that claim? Okay, that's a good point, especially with the um, advent of of non-symbolic approaches to AI and, and the various successes that they've had, ranging from self-driving cars to um, Google Translate, that they, they typically use non, non-symbolic neural network or statistical approaches. And the current um, success of AI is largely associated with non-logical approaches. So um, the way I like to think of it is in terms of the dual process model of human thinking, which has been uh, popularized by Daniel Kahneman, the uh, Nobel Prize winner in, in economics, in uh, and, and others, of course. Fast and Slow, the book. Yes, exactly. The book Fast and Slow uh, focuses on this this not only distinction between two ways of thinking, but also the relationship between them. So the non-symbolic approach is the fast way to, to think. It, it, it can be hard put into words, which is why it's non-symbolic. On the other hand, humans are capable of both thinking fast and, and thinking slowly in more conscious, more logical terms. So the, the two are typical of, of human thinking in particular. So the logic programming approach is, is more associated with the symbolic, with the conscious, with um, you know the more logical way of, of representing knowledge. And at the moment, that's not the main focus of, of of developments in AI, but nonetheless, it, it is necessary if we're ever going to be able to interact with it, uh, intelligent machines in a way which we as humans find c- congenial. Yeah, so so I think the two do complement one another. Uh, and as you say, how how well is this accepted? I think in psych- psychological circles, it is it is accepted that there are two ways of thinking that complement one another, and that reinforce one another 
Hmm. I would definitely like to come back to this issue about current AI and the role of logic. Um, but even if we accept that uh, there are two levels of human thinking and one is more, let's say, lang language oriented and and perhaps sequential or deliberate, uh, even if we accept that, is it um, obvious that that this can be characterized as similar to formal logic, to a logical system? Could it be something else? Okay, that's a good point. Certainly in the... Um pre 1970s, you know, 50, 50 years ago, there were many alternative symbolic approaches, uh, some, uh, semantic networks, which were graphical, represent, I guess, like RDF triples these days, um, and or trees. You, you don't hear much about and or trees these days, but they were another semi-graphical representation, which was not logical. And, and what we've discovered, thankfully, is is that all of these uh, are subsumed by logic and indeed their behavior and their representational capabilities uh, are uh, more generally representable in, in logical form. I guess another example would be frames, so Minsky's frames in the 1970s. There was a period when it was thought that this was uh, a very radical alternative symbolic way of representing knowledge. But I think these days most people who... Um, are interested in the subject would, would, would think that symbolic logic is, is quite capable of dealing with this. In particular, the, the non-monotonic forms also associated with logic programming in particular, but non-monotonic logic captures much of what Minsky was advocating when he advocated frames as a alternative to logic for symbolic reasoning. Mm. Let's see. Yeah. Let's see if we can come back to that as well, because we need some more background probably to, to unfold it. Um, but, um, well, okay. So let's try to characterize, first of all, logic then, um, logic programming. So logic is one, at least one half of that. And we're not talking about logic in general, but formal logic and perhaps primarily about, uh, first order logic. Yes. Well, there are, there are an awful lot of logics and, and philosophers in, in particular have, have, uh, investigated and, and indeed advocated a, a huge, um, complex uh, variety of logics for different purposes. So what what I'm advocating is 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 something much much simpler. Um, not only horn clause logic, but various extensions of it. Um, and well, without going into technical details, it is uh, related to first order logic, mm -hmm. indeed. Yes, but but uh, in some ways it's it's a sub language of first order logic. In other ways, it's it's an extension. We have learned a lot about logic, I think, in the last 50 years or so, and logic programming has contributed to our understanding. But uh, it is a very technical, it can be a very technical and, and uh, intimidating subject. Well, we could give some idea here about how horn clauses function, at least in the context of logic programs. It's in general very similar to what you were, the example you gave about uh, British citizenship. You can phrase it as an if-then statement. Uh, yes, yes, indeed. And, and the, point, the point being that there are two readings in the sense. One reading is, is purely logical and declarative, as, as we sometimes say, uh, without any concern for how that would be used in practice to solve problems. So a person is a British citizen if, and I, I like to read these thens backwards by focusing on the conclusion, because the conclusion typically is what you're interested in establishing. But that's 
partly because of the procedural interpretation, which is uh, amenable to computer implementation, because typically we want to use these sentences in this backward direction, backwards from conclusions to conditions. But nonetheless, there is a logic which is neutral, which doesn't depend upon whether you reason forwards from uh, conditions to conclusions or backwards from conclusions to conditions as subgoals. So, so that's that's a point which is is um, is characteristic of logic that it, it is more declarative. Uh, it is more in the database tradition, if you like, from a computing point of view, than it than it is in a programming tradition. I think this is the for a programmer often very fascinating when you first learn uh, a bit of prologue that you can implement a predicate to, for example, do, uh, well, I guess the classical example is list concatenation, and uh, you can run it in both directions, so to speak. You can both use it to put together lists and to take apart lists, and it's the very same code that does it, and it seems very magical at first. And then many people get disappointed because not everything is so simple. <laughs> but that would be, I suppose, an example of... Um, the declarative nature and the logical nature of prologue that the same statement can be used to reason in one direction and in the other direction as well. Right, right. Um, but it also has a relationship to the to the notion of truth. So I guess uh, to say that something is a sentence is declarative is to say that it has um, a, a relationship of truth to some external reality. Uh, to some model theoretic structure, some model of reality, perhaps. Uh, that that's getting a bit philosophical, perhaps at this stage. Maybe right. We, we, but we should... so you you don't you don't just um, sorry, but you don't just view the program in terms of what it does, but in exactly. terms of okay, what the truth value is. Yes, yes, yes. That's right. Yes. Thank you. But so what was it uh, that made horn classes so appealing in the first place? If if we go back to when you yourself started working in this area, uh, horn classes were important from a fairly early stage, right? Yes, that's that's right. I suppose the um, what 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 amazed um, me and maybe others too was just how much could be naturally represented with horn clauses um, from a purely theor theoretical point of view they're they're they, they seem quite restrictive they um and and and, and indeed my first reaction when i when i i saw people working on horn clauses i thought you know that that um, they're missing an awful lot that of the power of of, of first order logic but so the great the great um discovery was sometimes you you have a powerful language but you only need a very small part of it and and indeed Horn clauses alone are, are quite a small part of, of full first order logic, and it was quite amazing to to discover just how powerful they were. So, in particular, there's a very natural correspondence with these Andor trees, which I, I mentioned earlier, and indeed they're quite a bit more powerful than the Andor trees, which were rather popular in the 60s. So, that, I think that that's probably what made them attractive to, initially, at least. And and was it also that they were more um, suited for computation and automated proof and so on? Uh, yes, I I I, I I guess that must be the case. The, these days, there's a lot of interest in variants of of logic programming which don't have that 
uh, implementation method, you know, the backward reasoning, reducing goals to sub goals. And to some extent, that approach is, has fallen out of favor in large sections of the logic programming community, uh, a community now working on answer set programming and data log, for example, do doesn't uh, advocate or exploit that procedural interpretation of, of horn clauses. But at the time, it, I think that was quite an important uh, um, motivation for, for embracing uh, logic programming. So, okay. And I, I believe it still has relevance today, of course. Right. So at the beginning of the 70s, you were in Edinburgh. Yes. Uh, and um, that's where your contributions to the foundations of logic programming started, I think, with something called resolution, or perhaps you had been working in this towards this area before. Well, uh, it was Alan Robinson, of course, who developed re resolution. And when I came to do my PhD in Edinburgh 50 years ago in 1967, Robinson was on sabbatical. And uh, he was a good friend of my supervisor, and, and I immediately started working on improving the res resolution system that Robinson uh, had developed. Uh, so at the time in 1967, resolution was unbelievably redundant, and, and nobody understood how, how it worked, but they knew that it, it, it did work. So that that's... Um, so, so my contributions had to do with, uh, to some extent, identifying how resolution logic, a variant of first order logic, uh, uh, equivalent to first order logic, how, how it could be useful for, for practical applications, although this was building on work of uh, Cordell Green at Stanford, which was very much uh, a center of excitement and attention at the time, and simultaneously trying to make that representation uh, work effectively when implemented by computer and that led to my life so okay so was yes. that sorry what was that like the, the last part you mentioned like to make it uh, implementable on a computer was that an additional goal so that was not the main target here that you were working on the, the resolution was not only meant no, for it mechanization was, it was the main target okay yeah it was the, the mechanization so at that time Resolution was was uh, mainly associated with mathematical theorem proving. So in the in the sixties, most people working in resolution, and there weren't very many of of, of them, uh, were, were thinking of applying it to automated mathematic proving of mathematical theorems. And then Cordell Green at Stanford uh, showed that it could be applied to a vast range of of um, computing and artificial intelligence problems, including planning problems, question answering, and what he called uh, automate, automatic programming. So there was uh, an early version of logic programming, you could say, that, that, that Cordell Green had discovered. So it was Cordell who was interested in knowledge representation. The rest of us were, it, were working on the um, mechanization of, of resolution. Hmm. And there was a gap be because Cordell's examples did not make sense when run on a computer they they behaved um just unsensibly un so to speak and it was putting the two together that that along with other developments gave rise to logic programming i would say mm. and was this I'm, I'm still curious about your initial non-enthusiasm for com computers <laughs> was this 
at that time exciting to you the the idea of of automating proofs and and logic or or was it kind of a a, a sidetrack or <laughs> you you're, you're quite right i it was a sidetrack i i certainly didn't uh I didn't actively choose to work on that subject. And to some extent, I thought it, it, I, I didn't really regard it as, as a, a worthy, a worthy problem to solve, but I had already dropped out of a PhD at, at Stanford. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had, I had restarted a PhD and I didn't really know what I was doing. And I decided that I would get through this PhD as quickly as I, as I could and get on and start doing something else. But I never did start doing something else. Uh, and, and more importantly, th- this thing that I didn't want to do in the first place uh, turned out to be perhaps one of the better ways um, that I uh, might have uh, found to do what I wanted to do to begin with, namely to understand better how um, to make humans reason and think better. And it, 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 it has been the ultimate goal of my my interest uh, it, it was not the topic of my phd but my phd nonetheless did help in ways that that i'm that a more direct approach might not have uh, been able to deal with hmm. so um okay so here we have we have talked about first order logic horn clauses and resolution which um, let's see if we if we really covered this uh, at least a little bit. Uh, resolution was kind of an emerging technique for automating theorem improving, but there was also a growing understanding that it could used be used for more general problem solving. Yes, that's good. And and I would say there's one other element of the mix which is very important, which is um, at MIT the, the criticism of resolution, uh, which led to the development of the planner uh, language uh-huh. uh, of Carl Hewitt, yes. and it, and its use by Terry Winograd to implement a large portion of his PhD thesis, which was extremely influential at the time, and this was um, promoted as an alternative to logic, uh, and as a procedural representation of knowledge as opposed to a declarative representation of knowledge. So this made the waters, so to speak, and it created enormous uh, confusion. On the one hand, you have um, resolution logic and, and its applications to problem solving. And then you have the planner language, which is characterized as a procedural approach alternative to logic. And yet it was clear to me that there were similar to others, I suppose, that the planner language had similarities to resolution which were not understood. And it was trying to understand that relationship and that similarity that I would say um, gave rise to logic programming as I characterized it so far, yes. Right, so so exactly. So planner, the system, and those other criticisms, you're saying they were kind of provoking the formulation of logic programming. Yes, uh, indeed. Yes, there is this famous, uh, as you say, a pseudo equation of yours. Algorithm equals logic plus control. Yes, so so, is that the correct? And 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 actually, that never I never quite understood it until more recently when I got the full picture of of this criticism coming from MIT, for example, and uh, that the word control, I guess, what that alluded to was the procedural paradigm and. uh, Perhaps a more pragmatic approach to 
artificial intelligence and knowledge representation? Well, in particular, from what we've been talking about, it would apply, for example, to the reason backwards or forwards from conclusions to conditions or from conditions to conclusions, and also whether you reason sequentially or in parallel. So if you have if you have conclusion if two conditions, do you do you work on the two conditions in parallel, one before another, in what order? So that, that that's that, that's what I meant by control in that pseudo equation. Yes, but but it was somehow emphasizing that that we're that it's you're you don't you not you're not only having the declarative formulation, but you are also getting the benefits of the more procedural interpretation. Right. So the control. The control component deals with the more procedural aspects, yes. indeed, yes. And this is uh, interesting because, uh, as I think you mentioned, a lot of recent, well, advances or um, research in logic programming is aimed at making it even more declarative. Right. And right. and eliminating any trace of uh, of sequence or... Um, or procedural interpretation. But it seems that you have been very clear from the beginning and, and also in your recent work, you seem to always emphasize this balance between the two sides. Yes. Um, and I, I, I justify that by, by thinking about human reasoning. Human reasoning and human language is not solely about declarative um, representations. It also has to do with how we put that knowledge into practice in order to solve problems. We, we, we do express procedural information in, in ordinary language. And to remove it from computer language, as some advocates of declar purely declarative knowledge representation would have us do, is to remove um, much of the power that we as humans uh, employ and, re and need when we communicate with one another and when we, when we organize our own thoughts. There is a procedural element to, yes. to, to our thinking and to our communication with other humans. Yes. Yeah. I, for me, this is very interesting because um, um, I guess you could say in in the, in the programming community in general, there has been there is a trend a little bit away from the imperative paradigm. Although, of course, it is still the most widely used and it's not going away, but. There is a lot of interest in not in so much in logic programming, but in functional programming and in eliminating thinking about states and state updates and uh, and sequential procedures, etc. And it's very, I mean, of course, I, I find it very fascinating and and useful. But uh, it's also clear to me that many problems are very natural to express in terms of a sequence. And uh, I, I think you can also find, as, as you're talking about, many different examples in everyday life. For example, a recipe, it, it's very natural to describe it as a sequential series of steps, like a cooking recipe. And it would be silly to try to explain or to state it in, in some other way, whereas perhaps uh, laws uh, and the contracts could perhaps uh, be examples where it's more useful to use a more declarative approach. Well, the, this is a very deep and um, difficult topic, and I don't think that it, it will be well understood for many years. <laughs> <laughs> the um, and you're, you're quite right. Let me let me just say that that the relationship between imperative and declarative representations has not really been thought about or studied in 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 the world of computer science. 
but it has been studied in, in philosophical logic and, and linguistics. And the conclusions people in those other disciplines come to are quite remarkable and very different from anything that I've ever seen suggested in the computer science literature. You would have thought that the computer scientists would uh, at least address this issue. What is the relationship between imperative and declarative representations of knowledge? And my, my proposal in algorithm equals logic control did address that. But it, it I would say today, many years later, that, that it didn't really um, hit hit the uh, nail on the head, that, that there is something uh, much more fundamental that, that's going on, which uh, is simply not understood and will not be understood for a long time to come, mostly because scientists don't seem to think it's worth considering this problem. I, I'm shocked by it myself. I, I, I can't put my my um, views about this too strongly. It, it's 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 amazing that that a discipline that which calls itself a science uh, does not tackle the fundamentals um, problem of, of of its subject. Hmm. Do you think that computer science should be more uh, that there should be a more interest in psychology and related fields to kind of inform computer science, or just in in its own terms? You're saying here, uh, computer science should be more interested in this topic. Yeah. So in its own in its own terms, I mean, it's yes, I, we should look broadly at psychology, philosophy, linguistics. But but we have to be careful because those disciplines have their own problems and they can as easily lead us astray as they can enlighten us. But there is this fundamental problem of computing, which computer scientists ought to be addressing, but but for most part are almost entirely aren't addressing at all. What about the kind of um, formalism that's going on in functional programming? Uh, for example, solving this problem using uh, monads is that something do you think it, how do you relate that to logic programming or to what we're talking about right now because i think for many people that is the most elegant solution to how you combine a declarative and uh, and an imperative or, or at least state updates ways of uh, thinking or needs mm. do you have any views on that or <laughs> Right, I, I don't want. To. <laughs> or is it taking us too far? Well, I would say it's, it's monads are. It's, it is taking us a bit far, but I'll, I'll simply say that 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 monads are very complicated. That uh, the problem should have a much simpler solution, and I believe it does have hmm. a much simpler solution. Hmm. And uh, functional programming has has great strengths, and it's it's very much um, a part of the solution of these problems. But monads uh, are are far too remote from from human ways of thinking to where so change of state in particular change of state and thinking about it both declaratively and procedurally is is much easier uh, for humans who have no mathematical training to to deal with and, and it can be um, dealt with in a, in a much simpler way i believe but I, I don't want to say that functional programming doesn't have something to contribute it certainly does um, but I don't know about monads, though. It shouldn't be necessary. It okay. shouldn't be necessary to have a PhD in in computer science or mathematics to be able to um, think both declaratively, procedurally, and to understand the relationship between them. And there's no monads in linguistics. There's no monads in uh, 
in psychology there who have studied this relationship between imperative and and declarative. Okay, very fascinating. Let's um, get back a little bit to um, again to the early seventies and and Edinburgh. So you were working on resolution, and then you got in touch, or somehow you established a relationship with a group in France. Yes. Yeah, Alan Comerau had um, been working on question answering systems and, and using resolution, and he was very excited about that. Previously, as a previously following his PhD, he had gone to Canada and, and done work on machine translation. And indeed, he developed a system which turned out to be the first machine translation system used in commercial practice to translate weather forecasts between English and, and French. When he returned to France, he he turned to question answering along the lines that Cordell Green had been advocating. And when he discovered our work on what we called SL resolution, selected linear resolution, and saw how it was more efficient for that application, he invited me to visit him. And this is more or less when uh, the work on uh, prologue and logic programming uh, came about through this, partly through this um, different background his his background and my background being very different and yet having um a, a congenial uh, common ground that we were able to build on yes uh, how could you if you could characterize the well the what he contributed and what you contributed from each side okay so let me go back to grad thesis winograd used planner for the recent component of of um of a natural language understanding system, but he also had his own gram grammar, which was which he regarded as also procedural in nature. And part of the confusion to do with logic and procedural representations of knowledge was associated with Winograd's use of these two and, and indeed even a third formalism, all combined together with Lisp to make to add some further confusion. So there was a, a lot of effort at, in Edinburgh by myself and, and Pat Hayes in, in particular uh, to try to understand the relationship between the the um, Winograd's work on natural language understanding and the resolution uh, approach. When I visited Palmrower, he had a background in linguistics and in and in machine translation, so he he had a better understanding than I did, much better understanding about. Um, how to do natural language processing, and he had already developed a commercial, uh, a system that would soon become commercial in Canada. And I had been struggling to understand how to to, to understand the grammar approach of, of Winograd in logical terms, and it was it was that initial concern with representing natural language grammars in logical terms that um, got us started. Basically, and we each had different contributions to make to that particular issue and from that moving from grammars represented in logic to more general knowledge representation in logic uh was a natural next step mm. i i got the sense i i read also kolmagao's uh, account of the the birth of prologue and 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 yours as well and i got the sense or the feeling that um they were very much aiming at the, at this practical goal of uh, machine under, uh, natural language understanding, and uh, perhaps this is one of the reasons why this line of research went in another direction than what you were talking about before—the general or the more mathematical theorem proving, etc. 
Yes, that that's right. So 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 uh, Comora is much more practical and and uh, focused on actually building um, a system than then than I was. So I was I was much more the theoretician philosopher, if you like. He he sometimes called me the poet of logic programming compared with him as as the engineer. Sorry, the he called you the <laughs> the poet, <laughs> the poet. So poet. So okay. Yes. <laughs> Just to show how remote I was from, yes. from anything and, to do and, with, and, right. with the computer. <laughs> so, do you think that um, perhaps you would have stayed more in the theorem improving realm had it not been for this work? <laughs> I would have uh, left the field of computing altogether if it had not been for this work. That is fascinating. I mean, so it seems something, and you alluded to it earlier, something about logic programming really caught your interest because you have been working on it for, for several decades after this. Uh, I mean, I've always been much more interested and still am on, uh, uh, on human problem solving, human problems, and how to deal with uh, conflicts between different points of view, how to reason one's way to solutions, and, and, and finding systematic the, the the link to computing is finding systematic ways of of solving human problems, helping okay, how to improve human ability to 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 deal with 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 problems, and simulating um, um, algorithmic approaches if you like. So basically, what computers are about is uh, solving problems systematically. So if if we could also solve human everyday problems system systematically we could improve our ability and this has been the driving force really i believe of of my my research and it 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 links to computing but but it's and so my 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 book my my latest book in 2011 is is entitled computational logic and human thinking how to be artificially intelligent because I think that what we've discovered in making computers more intelligent can be used also by people to improve their own human intelligence. So th that's what I would have done. But, and if I had left um, computing, uh, but I wouldn't have been able to do it in, if I hadn't studied computing and artificial intelligence and, and worked on it um, myself. Uh, to, to me, it seems also there is something about trying to implement. If you have a theory in well to do with logic or reasoning or uh, linguistics, and when you have to try to implement it as a computer program, it's a yes, really right. it's a very harsh test of your theory. Uh, it's you cannot you cannot cherry pick examples or you know write a book where you study like ten different sentences and right, try to right. analyze them. Oh, well, let me give you a concrete example actually, because what I've just said was a bit vague, maybe, but uh, specifically uh, improving writing skills, improving writing skills. When I was an undergraduate in my first year at the University of Chicago, I failed the English placement test. I, I got a D in my English writing skills course. And I spent years after that trying to understand what was wrong with my English. I, ha I have managed to improve my English, I believe. Uh, and uh, the techniques needed to improve English style are, 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 can be systematically learned. And, and they're, they're techniques that are related to systematic ways of understanding communications. Uh, 
So if we have a if we have a computational model of what it means to understand communication, understand sentences, then we we can write sentences in a way which minimizes the computational effort of a listener or a reader. So th- there's a concrete way. There, there's a concrete way in which a computational model associated with artificial intelligence or more simple forms of computing can help a human be more intelligent with respect to writing skills and, and to improve writing skills. And that, and that, I think, can be applied more generally. But that's a specific, very concrete example, which I've um, applied to my own uh, work um, and I've benefited from, yes. But this goes back to what we were talking about at the, at the outset, about there seems to be some notion here that human thinking in the first place does have some kind of logical structure and, and not only logical structure, but something that is close yes, to maybe. first order logic or even logic ah. programming. Ah, okay. Okay. Let me give you another concrete example. There's a, a popular book called, um, what is it called? The pyramid, the pyramid principle, uh, logical ways of thinking and writing. So it's a, it's a book written by, um, Barbara Chato, uh, who was a management consultant. And this was written to help business people uh, represent, um, to write more effectively. And what she advocates is the pyramid principle. What's the pyramid principle? You have the goal at the top that you want to um, focus on, and then you break down into its components and it gets broader and broader, more detailed at the base of the pyramid. Well, this is very, fits very well with logic programming because you have a single conclusion then the then part, the consequent of a, of an implication. And then you have multiple conditions, typically. You are a British citizen if you're born in the United Kingdom, and uh, one of your parents was, say, a British citizen. So if you then say, what does it mean to be born in the United Kingdom? There might be you know, several conditions. What does it mean for a parent to be a British citizen? That might have several conditions. And you can unfold. You could go learn lower in this pyramid. So what she advocates for clear writing is to... You know, Express your thoughts in this style where you don't uh, start at the bottom of the pyramid and nobody knows where you're aiming for, but but start at the very beginning. Get clear what your goal is and decompose it into sub-goals. Don't go into greater detail than necessary to make your main point. So there's a close relationship between logic programming and clear um, communication and expression of, of information. So that that's a... a, a an example, yes, that's an example. So that this is similar to the resolution algorithms that you were working on in those early days. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And so maybe I mean it's very hard probably to give a full picture of all the different pieces that had to come together, but um, to, to to create prologue. But uh, one is um, that we should mention is unification. Yeah. So what is unification? How does it fit into this picture that we have been talking about? <laughs> well, we're, we're, we are going into technicalities now, I suppose. So if you look at first order logic and conventional representations to reasoning in first order logic, you have you, what are called universal quantifiers for all X or if X is a bird, then X can fly. And um, you have the rule of instantiation. You can replace X by Tweety, by P, P or whatever you want to, any particular bird. So conventional reasoning before resolution would 
explode. If you wanted to reason with universal quantifiers, you would you have to replace these these universally quantified variables by all their instances or the instance relative to your problem. Well, unification was a way of of lazily, so to speak, of lazily uh, instantiating those variables to the minimal extent, delaying the need to to go into detail. So unification, which is associated with many of the marvelous features of of uh, prolog. Um, uh, like like with the append example concatenation that 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 built upon this unification mm-hmm. feature you wrote that it took you a few years for you yourself to appreciate the elegance of prolog that you were not that happy with it at the, uh, at the outset but then after a, a couple of years or so you you, you yourself uh, came to appreciate it much more well i think the one thing that that i i um I found difficult with with Prolog in the very beginnings was the backtracking uh, as a search mechanism, because independently of of my work on resolution, I had also been working on search for theorem proving, and um, to be backtracking was was a, a rather primitive, rather risky way of trying to search a, a space could be infinite, because you could easily fall down a, an infinitely long branch, and w- which turned out to be the case, and which turned out to be one of the reasons why Prolog um, uh, failed to some extent uh, uh, in, in, the, in the 1980s when many people were attracted to it and discovered that, that it just went into an infinite loop. So in the very earliest days, I, I was concerned that that strategy, which was so important um, to, to its uh, successful uh, getting off the ground, Komarov, I think, picked it because it was a natural way of implementing grammars, which, which I guess could avoid those loops due to some other finiteness conditions, which, which were, however, not um, the case in, in, in more general computing applications. Now, it turns out, and I, I must say this because it's, it's important, is that we, we, we now have a, a solution to most of those looping problems, which is, which is tabling. Yes. So the, 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 there are systems of, pro, of prologue which, which do tabling and which, which do not fall into most of those infinite loops. So you can program more declaratively much, for a much longer period before you run into trouble. Yes, and this is definitely something I would like to highlight in this podcast in general is uh, out of those programmers who give Prolog a a try, uh, it seems fascinating at first, but then you run into these classical infinite loops or the difficulties uh, with uh, doing just numerical computing. And I I think too many people conclude too quickly that it's not workable for anything practical. But as you say, actually, many of these problems have been very kind of intensively worked at and um, and solved to a large extent. It's just that perhaps they haven't been standardized enough. Or yes, I think that that's true. There, if you're talking about Prolog, but there there are other logic programming systems um, such as Datalog, which is uh, more uh, data oriented, database oriented, and also answer set programming, uh, both of which don't don't uh, aren't subject to these loops. But I'm not necessarily saying we should. Uh, follow those approaches, although you know they are worth worthy of of attention and and do have contributions to make. Okay, so I think a fairly well known way of programming with rules are so called rule engines or business rules. 
So it would be interesting to talk a little bit about how that relates to to rules in logic programming and perhaps more generally about uh, different types of rules, because I know you have been thinking and writing about this. Well, that's that's right. So what, one of the ways in which uh, prologue is often presented is to say that we have facts and, and rules. So these horn clauses are often characterized as, as being rules. But there is um, another class of rules, which the best example um, is probably production rules and production systems, which have been used both for implementing computer applications, especially expert systems, but also have been used for what they call cognitive models of, of, of human thinking. So at, at one time, production systems were regarded as the best computational model of human thinking that we have. But these production rules are, are um, similar to to horn clauses, but they're not. And uh, many people have been very confused about what the relationship is and, and, and whether there is any difference between these different kinds of rules. And that, that's had a tremendously uh, bad effect on on the development of, of uh, a major part of, of, of computing. So when did this uh, confusion appear, would you say? <laughs> when this, this confusion arose certainly towards the end of the 70s, and certainly all, all during the expert system years, during the 80s, when expert systems were particularly popular, um, most of that discussion was confused by using the term rules um, for both kinds of rules without adequate, without distinguishing between them and without not only distinguishing them, but not without uh, trying to understand what the relationship and difference between them might actually be. So that that's mm. now the question is: Do we now do we now understand? We we now understand that that there is a difference between these rules, and in particular these production rules, these if then rules in rule engines typically have imperative imperative then parts, conclusion parts. So if it's raining, then carry an umbrella. If, if somebody uh, attacks you, then attack them back. So they have imperatives in their in their conclusions. And the big question so is... So the conclusion is somehow an action that should be taken. That's right. That's right. That's right. Okay. And, mm -hmm. and so you might think, well, these are, can be programmed in prologue. And indeed, they can be pro programmed in prologue. But... Um, does that all of a sudden make them declarative? Does that all of a sudden uh, give a good semantics to these uh, production rules, these 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 um, imperative conclusion mm -hmm. rules? Uh, I'm not so sure it does. In fact, I would claim it doesn't at all uh, do so. So that's a big problem. So could you say that these two kinds of rules, if you program them in or state them in prologue, they look almost the same? It's hard to distinguish them by looking at the prologue program. That, that's right. That's right. So you would you would have to write um, you'd have to write them in the same manner, and uh, you'd have to connect them in in some way which might be a bit artificial to the actual distinction between them. Yes. Yeah, so we ha we have a we have a problem with that today. Okay. Let's see if we can make it even more clear. So so. So what is the, the crucial distinction and, and why is it so harmful to not get it right? Okay, I, I'm always uh, inspired by, um, by, by, by human thought outside uh, the field of computing. There are distinctions that have been drawn by philosophers and 
by linguists and, and uh, others between goals and beliefs, for example. And in the world of um, normative systems, people distinguish between two kinds of rules, rules which constitute some concept and rules which regulate some state of affairs. There seems to have been much more attention paid to these issues outside of the field of computing, even though it's even more important in computing that we understand uh, the relationships that, that, that are going on here. Yeah, so I would put it very simply like this, that human beings have goals and they have beliefs. They use their beliefs to help them achieve their goals. Both of these can be uh, put in rule form, but they have very different uh, characters and, and we need to combine them and we need to keep them distinct at the same time. So that I, I would say is, is the essence of what the relationship is between the two different kinds of rules. And it's and it points to how we need to bring them together in a, in a way which respects their different uh, characters uh, and how they interact with one another. Mm. So you're not saying then that one type of rule is uh, useful and the other one is not as useful. It's, it's, you're saying we need both, but we need to understand. Absolutely. The... And, mm -hmm. Right. And we need, we need to bring them together in the appropriate manner. Yes. So I don't know how much you have been dealing with this, but but in a typical rule system, I mean, there are some fairly established industry uh, enterprise rule systems. Would those fall squarely into the production rule type? I think they would. Yeah, and, and anything that's being used, you know, on a daily basis, being called a rule system, would probably be a production rule system. Yes. Okay, and. And the defining characteristic here is that it's uh, it's geared towards deciding which action to take depending on on the inputs. Absolutely. Okay. So re regulatory. About, uh, okay, regulatory. Because one of I've, one of the ways I would think about rule engines is that they they reason forwards. They don't typically implement um, backwards reasoning at all. Right. That's because they're dealing with actions. So you perform actions on the current state and you move to the next state and then perform more actions. So you get a sequence of state transitions. And this is, of course, also in the nature of, of what most conventional algorithms are in imperative uh, programming languages. So the, the concept of state transition is is fundamental to the way things are, not just in the world of computing. That's the way things are in, in human life. You know, the world changes. It changes state. Um, actions are performed. Events take place. They change uh, their part of the world. And, and that can be described by rules. But at the same time, we can have other kinds of uh, rules, constitutive rules or logic programming kinds of rules, which define ramifications of, of changes to uh, more primitive um, state affairs. For example, when people are born and die, that there are ramifications uh, which can be defined by other rules to do with uh, uh, the, the citizenship of those people who live and die. Uh, it has to do with um, the places that are inhabited by different people, depending upon who has been born and who has died. So there are two kinds of rules, rules which describe ramifications, uh -huh. rules which describe sequences of, of actions which have a more 
I won't say declarative, but more logic programming nature. And then there are these regulative rules which actually generate state transitions, which are like production rules and which are action rules. Yes. Uh huh. Okay. So just get to get even more deeply into this. So why is it that a production rule will not suffice to to describe these uh, cases that you're talking about? Like what, what happens? What happens to the property of someone who has died? Is it because you need to consider, you have to kind of consider more different um, inputs to decide what to do before you actually do it? You need the full power of reasoning before you can just react. Right. So, okay, that, that's a good. So you, you were saying earlier uh, that, that we could implement production rules in Prolog, and that's true. And now you're saying we could implement prologue-like rules in production systems, and that's true. <laughs> um, okay. And uh, but but then the question is, is it worth it? Therefore, if you can do one inside the other, is it really worth separating them and combining them in some principled manner? Uh, so let, let's go back to goals and beliefs. So the goals, a human humans' goals and the humans' beliefs are, are are distinct. We wouldn't typically say, well, you could re- you could replace human beliefs by goals or or human goals by beliefs. We wouldn't normally say that, although there is an element of truth to that (laughs) in the sense that um, we could replace, we could get rid of all of our beliefs and reduce them to condition action rules. So that is true. You know, and you can compile, for example, you could compile your goals and your beliefs into more primitive stimulus response reactions so that you act without thinking. So acting without thinking is like a production system approach to implementing higher level rules to do with concepts and eliminating them um, from your conditioned stimulus response behavior. Um, yes. <laughs> yes. Well, I don't I, know. I, 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 mm-hmm. No, I think I understand the point here. Um, but so you're saying... It's, or it seems to me you're saying these are two, again, coming back to kind of two natural for humans way of uh, organizing um, thinking. Um, We have beliefs and we have goals and these map onto different types of rules. And, and you're saying there has been a lot of confusion about this also, which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. At the because because expert systems were at least for a time sort of the a great success story for logic in artificial intelligence. Well, you say logic. Uh, <laughs> expert systems were mainly implemented in production systems with if-then rules, which um, have imperative consequences, which don't have logic in the in the normal sense of um, truth conditions. You know. The, this this characterization that we talked about before yes so and that so there's so production rules are definitely symbolic there's no doubt about that but they're not in their normal form as you say form they forward but they don't reason forward it's not reasoning and therefore to talk about forward chaining is okay but to say forward reasoning no because they're they don't have a logic uh, they can be given a logic and my my work over the last decade or so has been concerned with giving a logic to appropriately reformulated production rules uh, condition action rules give, they they can be given a logic but but uh, you know other without being given a logic they don't have a logic of their own right 
in the same in the same way that imperative sentences don't have a logic you know there's a big question mark about whether there is a logic of imperatives for example in natural language it's a question which is uh, that's right so uh -huh. there, that question is addressed in natural language it's, it's sorry, in linguistics the question is addressed in the philosophy of, of language but it's not even touched upon in uh, computer science is there a logic of imperative sentences there, there are logical there are attempts to link imperative sentences to logic but not to actually interpret imperative sentences in a computer language as uh, having a logic of their own you know it can be studied using logic but not have a logic of their own okay yeah, so let's talk about your recent research soon but let's stay a little bit in the 80s and maybe 90s where uh well expert systems were having their day but also logic programming and and let's talk a little bit about the fifth generation computer systems project. Um, do you want to tell me what that was and how you were involved or, or to what extent you were involved? Right. So um, the uh, Japanese government decided to heavily invest in an approach that they believe would uh, skip a generation of computers. Leapfrog IBM was one of the phrases they, they used at at one stage and the idea was to combine artificial intelligence applications with highly parallel com computer architectures of a of a non von, von neumann variety probably meaning by that they didn't uh, uh ex they didn't work on the principle of state transitions basically they they performed operations in a highly parallel manner and uh the, the, they had identified logic programming as the potentially missing link between artificial intelligence applications and highly parallel control strategies so this idea of logic and control meant that you could use parallel very parallel uh mechanisms a bit like MapReduce today for that matter so MapReduce was was one of the approaches that without give, being given that name, which, which was being considered for the implementation of, of logic programs. And that uh, was a heavily funded project. And invitations were sent to the governments of, of, of uh, the UK, France and Germany to collaborate, which were, of course, turned down. But uh, competing developments were instituted to um, ensure that... that um, that other countries weren't, weren't left behind. So there was a lot of focus on logic programming, on artificial intelligence, and on these non-von Neumann architectures. So, I, so yeah. I, I'm so curious, uh, yes. how, how, how did all this feel for you? Uh, how did you experience all of this um, after? <laughs> I guess I guess the first word is scary, and then uh, intimidating, <laughs> and, and all the rest. So the the problem was that, that when, when the Japanese government approached the British government, there was a natural um, center of activity in Britain, of course, you know, both in Edinburgh and in, and, and in London at that time. And it was natural for us to contribute in one way or another, if not to the, to the Japanese effort, then to the British response. But, you know, everyone jumped on the bandwagon when, when the government decided that it, it, the British government decided that it would support computing to make sure that it wasn't uh, left behind by the Japanese work. Uh, you know, all, all the academics uh, in particular and, and the industrialists for that matter, you know, wanted to have a fair share of their uh, resources 
to, to, to develop their own work. So logic programming uh, actually was left behind for for considerable time in the beginning, mainly because the community was relatively junior uh, in terms of uh, uh, academic positions and didn't have very much influence. So it was a very scary time because there was a lot of pressure to to argue the logic programming, even though logic programming was was um, being very heavily developed in in the UK at the time. And of course, we also had in, uh, requests from Japanese visitors to come to Imperial College London to to work with us. And at the, while the government is, is in theory um, trying to prevent the Japanese project from overtaking, you know, British developments in the field, it was it was quite a difficult period of time. So, <clears throat> I mean, so then, yes, of course, you're going, you're going to ask me what happened. <laughs> Of course, yeah. <laughs> you, you got this question before I understand. Of course. So what happened was that uh, that it failed. You know, the Japanese uh, project failed. Um, in this, but you could say it was ahead of its time. Maybe that was part of the reason for its inability to achieve its objectives. But I think it failed for other more fundamental reasons. Uh, uh, first of all, I guess non-Van Neumann architectures are, are not the way the world works. The world works, as you said, sequentially with, with transition from one state to the next. And computers simulate that rather well because that's the way the world works. And it's quite appropriate that computers should work in this Van Neumann rather than the non-Van Neumann style. Artificial intelligence, so, okay, so artificial intelligence um didn't the, the the project wasn't able to develop any ai applications of any great significance in in the time the resources available so that didn't work and logic programming you know suffered as a consequence but both for good reasons and for bad reasons the good reason it failed was that it doesn't have this um the, these regulative rules, it, does, it doesn't have capability, the natural capability of representing regulative rules and state transitions. And uh, the other reason it failed, um, well, ah, because they, because the Japanese project had chosen a variant of logic programming, which was not very AI oriented. That was, that it didn't choose prologue-like logic programming, but it chose a control features associated with High degree of parallelism for these von Neumann architectures, which themselves were were not associated with mainstream computing efforts. Well, one way or another, the project did not achieve its objectives. There were there weren't the breakthroughs that that everyone had hoped for. At least everyone working in the field had was this hoped. surprising to you, or or did you see it coming? Uh, I, I I saw I, I to some extent I thought that the and, men, and many of my colleagues in logic programming felt that that the focus on non prologue like logic programming was was mistaken. Um, on the other hand, we we did have great uh, expectations that logic programming would solve all the problems of computing. Yes, that mm. that's it's fair to blame us for that. <laughs> uh, and now I see that that there's a huge uh, hole associated with what we're calling regulative rules now, uh, production rules, condition action rules, which logic programming did not and does not naturally deal with. So this aspect of uh, logic programming, um, um, where it was seen as very useful to doing, well, massively parallel computing, I suppose, that's not something yeah. that, that, that is that much associated anymore with, 
with logic programming, I would say. Is no, that it's a track it's, that has been kind of <laughs> lost. Well, that's you're quite right. And it's been associated instead with functional programming, although as far as I can tell, uh, the, the, the map reduced approach is very much the kind of approach in a sense pioneered, I would say, even by the logic programming community. Although even the logic programming community itself is not claiming credit for it. Just about uh, the point about the von Neumann architecture, I I often think that um, if for some reason computing had, you know, been implemented uh, in some completely different substrate from the outset, like some kind of biological computing, for example, where you throw together a lot of molecules and you do computing like that, which, as far as I know, has never been made very practical. But let's just say that it had happened in that way. Then maybe Prolog or logic programming would have seemed like the most natural way to formulate programs. And the sequ- and sequential imperative programs would have been seen more as a special case. But you seem to still, you know, after all, lean more towards the sequentiality being the sort of the fundamental way that the, that the universe is working. Yeah, yeah. I um, even even in the in the logic programming field, many researchers have have looked at uh, representation of change of state. So I myself and and uh, my colleague Marek Sergat developed what we call the event calculus to reason about how events change states of affairs. But this this was um, for knowledge uh, representation applications in artificial intelligence for reasoning about change, and um, so we, we, we've we've uh, understood that change of state is important, but somehow we thought that it was enough to reason about change of state rather than actually to generate change of state. And um, I'm I'm pretty sure that that, that was in, that that is not enough. That the reasoning is not enough. That we actually have to generate models of the world or generates trans sequences of states when to satisfy goals in, in, in many situations where the nature of the problem actually involves changing the world in order to um, create a, a state of affairs, which is, which is truly, which makes our goals true, which makes our goals true. So that, that, that that's the approach I'm, I'm thinking about these days. Right. So, okay. So let's finally get a little bit more into the system that you're working on. As you say, you have been working on for a decade or so. Um, what is it called, first of all? So we, we have a language called uh, logical production systems. So it's been inspired by trying to uh, make production rules and production systems logical. And it makes them logical by treating them as goals. But it combines them with logic programming by regarding logic programs as beliefs. So it's a system that combines goals with beliefs. But goals, um, but it tries to satisfy goals. So it's a it's a goal satisfaction system. The idea being is that um, we have goals and we want to make those goals true. It's not, and we use our beliefs about the way the world is whether we like it or not, to change the world by performing actions to make goals true. And, and that, that's the logical semantics of, of, of this system. And it, that imposes, like any declarative system, it imposes um, 
constraints on the implementation which are quite demanding it make it, it's quite hard to build a system that 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 satisfies those logical constraints you mentioned before logical contracts and logical documents so indeed uh, i'm associated now with a startup company which is using this system to represent logical contracts and the idea being that uh, a legal document has both constitutive rules which are like logic programs and which define legal concepts like being a british citizen but it also includes regulatory rules about rules of behavior so you uh, if you have a loan agreement you need to be able to um, specify that the loan has to be repaid over a period of time and if the loan is not repaid on time then certain um, potential defaults uh, occur which need to be remedied so you have a sequence of actions now to implement a some such as that uh, in a way which is faithful to our understanding of of the contract is difficult and in particular we want to be able to exploit destructive change of state so this is something which is absent both in functional programming and in logic programming uh, namely uh, holding on to only a current state but changing it uh, without being forced to remember the past so this is something that that creates demands on the system but if they can be satisfied makes it competitive with purely imperative languages which equally it performed destructive change of state. So uh, I think that's as close as I'll come to for the moment for um, for that. So, okay. So one thing I think from the experience of many programmers um, who are used to working with uh, SQL databases, or I'm just trying out a way of approaching this here. As long as you're just asking questions, as long as you're just querying the data, you can usually stay in a, in a pretty declarative paradigm, you could say. As long as you have your data in the database, you can ask questions on a quite a high level. But then when you move into having to update the state and take decisions and so on, it becomes much more ad hoc. And I'm trying to kind of get into what you said about having rules that you can reason about. Because usually if you have a rule to update something, you either do it or not uh once you commit to to making an update it's hard to use that as a kind of a to integrate that with a with reasoning in general it's a little bit hard to to get concrete here but i'm, I'm trying to see if we can come okay. up with a, okay, so, an example or some way of yeah okay that's good so in the database world the um sql is very much in the logic programming declarative uh, spirit on the other hand uh uh, updates using triggers in particular active yes. active rules uh, that that's more in the production rule uh, spirit which creates state transitions so, so on the one hand you have um, rules and you have logic for sql queries and on the other hand you have these active rules uh, that that do the updates and and are triggered by uh, other updates perhaps uh, and perform actions in response to trip to uh, updates so what what um we're trying to do is to give a logic to both of those um to both of those both to the sql side the query side which is like logic programs like beliefs if you want and the other um is the uh, active uh, side which is like goals 
the goal is to change the world to, for the world to be such that it be it it, it has an, the, the 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 desired relationship between one state and another state so 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 the logic of um an active rule with an imperative conclusion is that the clu- conclusion will be true in the future uh maybe immediately or after some period of time and it can be understood in purely logical terms and you can once you've expressed these goals all the active rules in in logical manner then you can as you say reason about uh consequences of those rules if those goals are made true then other sentences which are logical consequences of those goals will also be true uh-huh. and do you want them to be true maybe you don't in which case there's a fault with your uh with your program so yes this will give us the capability to reason about programs in another way than we have uh in the past yes so does that mean that um, before you actually kind of commit a state change you can reason about what it might lead to and you can uh then opt out of that change that you can sort of change your mind or you can you can um, reason about yeah what would happen if this rule was trigger if this thing triggers and then the next rule triggers and if that leads into something that is undesirable then you can backtrack out of that path before you even start executing it. yes you something. can backtrack out of that set of options you see that this is so much like human ways of thinking about making decisions about what to do in the world we have we have you know game theory we have decision theory you have a number of alternatives uh before you commit to um to one of them uh think about the consequences of of both the one that's uh, your favorite option and also some of the alternatives and and then choose the one which is which is best so if you look also outside of computing at, at work which is done in economics and psychology uh, you see that there is a model of human thinking human decision making which which fits in quite well with with computational problems and computational problem solving and can help to guide us in terms of which way we should approach um different ways of solving a pro- a problem yeah yes could could you say maybe one aspect of this is that the the state update becomes part of the query so when you're when you're when you're putting a query to the system it can take all the potential state updates into account without actually having to commit them as part of answering the query maybe maybe so when you say query i could use the word goal instead so so a query is a kind of goal but now yes. the query or the goal has time inside it so it's 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 the query might be not whether something is true at this particular point in time or in this particular state but would this it might be a query about whether something is true over a period of time and involving a number of actions in in uh, so the query might be whenever the uh, lender lends money does the borrower pay on time so that might be a, a query but it's a query over a, a sequence of state transitions yes that's yeah. right okay okay so maybe we could uh finish by talking a little bit about uh, the field of ai in general and uh i guess um we would have to say in general that uh, you already you already mentioned it that symbolic ai 
including logic programming, is not very much in in favor right now or in vogue. Uh, but wh- where do you see? I mean, you seem very optimistic, and you seem quite sure about the the place of logic and symbolic AI in the future. Well, that's partly because it's uh, it, it, it's um, important for human thinking, and as we move into the future computers will have to more and more uh, implement human thinking and and less and less will humans have to think like computers. So as I see it, uh, today programming languages especially make uh, programmers think like computers uh, by by, uh, simulating what happens if we change the state of, 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 of the computer. Whereas in the future, more and more, as we lift the level of the languages higher and higher, we have to make the machine work harder to uh, think the way we do. And uh, we definitely do think uh, in a conscious, deliberate, logical manner, systematically, uh, as in the dual process model. So although AI very much um, is uh, influenced by the sub-symbolic, statistical, and and, uh, neural network ways of, of thinking, more and more, as it becomes more uh, human-like, uh, it it will be combining that with with symbolic, more conscious, more deliberate, more logical representations, and combining it uh, in a harmonious way, in the same way that w- we want to um, combine goals and beliefs in 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 the the symbolic world. So we we have a symbolic world in which we have both goals and beliefs. And we have a sub-symbolic world, and we need to have uh, all of these working with each other harmoniously. Hmm. Have you been surprised yourself about the you know recent successes of neural networks and connectionist type of AI? I'm not sure that I have. I'm not. I know that many people <laughs> were, and, and perhaps some were even offended because they opposed uh, the neural network approaches from even minsky you know uh who um with, with his with his attacks on the perceptron uh, uh and also uh john mccarthy uh, you know he argued long time ago that that uh, before we start worrying about about developing ai systems that learn we we need to understand what kind of things they should be learning so we needed to work on knowledge representation so there 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 were many people in the ai field who felt that that it was too early to to worry about learning we had to first be able to hand code uh symbolic representations first mm. but so i mean what you said about raising the or or making communication with computers more on the human on on the on human terms instead of uh, on the computer's terms. I certainly agree. But I guess what some people would now say is that in terms of artificial intelligence, it's not so much about the language at, at all. It's 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 not going to be about computer languages of any kind, whether low level or high level or anything like that. Uh, I'm not quite sure if understand well if 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 neural networks or similar architectures can without very much kind of prior structure can well for example learn to understand language a natural language then 
then then it would seem that the need for a, a programming language as as such as what we think about as programming language will will kind of diminish altogether. Uh, no, I, I don't. I don't think that's the case. I I don't think that we will um, for long be be content with with purely uh, neural network uh, solutions to AI problems. Uh, and, and and there are many people concerned with practical applications who want these um, AI systems to be able to explain why why they reach the conclusions they reach, and and that requires. Uh, some kind of um, more symbolic, more um, dual process model of, of of thinking that 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 incorporates not only this um, sub symbolic level, but also a more logical sim- symbolic in a way which is integrated. So so that's uh, that that's coming. I mean, people are working on it, and and the the two are not incompatible. And, and AI is only at this stage; it it, it, it won't stay there forever. Right. Perhaps one possible way of looking at it is even if um, most of the processing were driven by some neural network style of computing, then the interface between human and, and computer would still need to be something that is intuitive and, and, and logical languages could play a natural part there. Yeah, that's that's certainly part of it, the, the need to interface to humans themselves. But also, you, you took your example of uh, natural language understanding. I'm not sure that neural networks will get far enough with natural language understanding unless they have some deeper understanding of um, what natural language is talking about. So uh, uh, AI will make great advances in, in areas like uh, self-driving cars, maybe. Um, but but machine translation and and natural language question answering that that really will require a deeper uh, more symbolic uh, approach to uh, knowledge representation. Yes. I think. Okay. Um, is there anything else you think we should have covered, or anything you want to add? No, you've 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 probed me pretty hard, and I, I I've enjoyed <laughs> yeah. talking with you and. Yeah. Uh, it's been really good for me, which is the important thing. Well, one of the important things for me, at least, is I've gotten a lot out of your your perceptive questions. Thank you. Thank you, and thank you so much for your time. We have spent uh, a big part of our Sunday here talking about these topics. Right. Well, thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for listening to this interview with Bob Kowalski. I actually recorded it two years ago and then this project got stalled for a while and when I came back to listen to it again I must say I was finding a lot of deep stuff in there that I had somehow not fully appreciated before. I think Bob has a really profound approach to computation and logic and thinking in general. I would very much appreciate any feedback you might have. You can find me on Twitter at searchspacepod or send me an email to felix at thesearch.space or just go to the webpage, which is thesearch.space. And if you want to give me an extra pat on the back, you can even buy me a cup of coffee from there. Last but not least, if you like the podcast, please share it with your network. And if you love it, you know a good rating and a review, maybe on iTunes, will help other people find it. In any case, I'll see you soon in the next episode. The music is Phase 1 by Silo Zyko, 
used under Creative Commons license.